At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. morning. We've not had the opportunity to meet. My name is Kurt McDonald. Um, I serve with a team of pastors here at the church, and this morning it is my great privilege to bring to you God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to it. Well, Jesus Christ is the most significant person in all of human history. More songs and more books have been written about Jesus Christ than any other person in all of human history. Jesus Christ is the most studied and debated about person that has ever lived. No one, no one, no one in all of human history is more famous or well-known than Jesus Christ. Some people are well-known for how much money they make. Uh, Some people are well-known for their humanitarian efforts. Other people in our culture are well-known for their artistic abilities or their music abilities. People make a name for themselves for a variety of different reasons. But here's why Jesus Christ is so well-known. Jesus Christ is known because of his death. That's why Jesus Christ is the most well-known and most famous person in all of the world. It is because of his death. The symbol that represents our faith is the symbol of the cross. The cross is the most widely recognizable symbol in all of the world. And the cross is not only a symbol of Jesus Christ's death, but the cross is a culmination of the purpose of his very life. In the same way, the cross is now emblematic of everything that we as Christians believe. We look to the cross. So this morning, that is what we will be discussing. And so in our modern Western culture, whether you are religious or irreligious, we are all very comfortable with the symbol of the cross. Now, this should be very, very strange, but it is not strange to us at all. You see, we see the cross everywhere. We see the cross on t-shirts and on hats and on jewelries, and we see the cross on tattoos and bumper stickers and on the steeple of churches. But in reality, the cross is a symbol of torture and pain and humiliation and execution and death. The the cross is on the same level as a noose or the gallows or the electric chair. And so it would be very strange if you said to someone or if someone invited you uh, to the electric chair church. Would you like to come and visit the electric chair church? You would, you would say no. Hopefully you would say no. But it is not strange for us if we say, would you like to come to the cross church? We're inoculated to this idea of the cross. We, if someone said, would you like to come to our guillotine gathering? Of course, that would be strange, and, and, and we would be put off by that. But, but because of how much we have seen the cross, we've lost the idea of what it truly is. A symbol of death, a symbol of pain, a symbol of execution. This is exactly why the, the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. He says this, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, watch this, 
a stumbling block to Jews. The, the cross is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The, the Jewish people were not looking for a crucified Messiah. That They couldn't figure out how to connect crucified and Messiah. It didn't make sense to them. In the same way, the Greeks and the Romans, as they look at a man who is dying on the cross, they cannot connect hero, leader, deity to a man who would be killed on a cross. It doesn't make any sense to him. And this is why the Apostle Paul says that it is absolutely a stumbling block and folly to them. And here is what is so absolutely shocking about what we see in the New Testament. Although crucifixion was public torture that lasted for hours and sometimes days, though the pain was excruciating, the torture and excruciating pain is not what the New Testament emphasizes. So the New Testament does not describe the cross or crucifixion in terms of hammering nails through flesh. The New Testament does not describe the crucifixion and cross in, in the sense of spattered blood and cries of agony. It does not emphasize it that way. It does not describe it in that way at all. As a matter of fact, just let your eyes go to verse 33 of our text today. Look at how Luke describes this. Verse 33, I'm jumping right into it. It says this, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, watch this, there they crucified him. That's all that is said. That, that is the stark reality of how Luke describes it. He doesn't go into detail. He, he doesn't give us the play-by-play. The -play. He just said they crucified him. Watch this, because if you're taking notes, the New Testament emphasizes what was accomplished on the cross, not the pain that was endured. The emphasis of, of what is told to us, what is written about as the New Testament writers, as they write out the gospel accounts, and then subsequently as the epistles come and the apostle Paul and others are describing the, the implications of the cross, they're not focusing on the pain that he endured. Let me pause here just for a moment. Did he endure pain? Yes, he endured great pain. It's not as if Jesus Christ as the God-man secretly has this S on his chest and as they nailed the nails into his hands and to his feet, it didn't hurt him at all and he simply pretended to be experiencing pain. That's not true at all. He really did experience the pain, but that is not the focus of the New Testament. The New Testament wants to tell us not about the pain that he experienced, but the New Testament wants to explain to us what was accomplished on the cross. And what was it that was accomplished on the cross? I'm glad you asked. What was accomplished on the cross was the propitiating work of Jesus Christ. Well, that's a fancy word. It's not very fancy at all. It simply means that the wrath of God that was coming to us was put onto Jesus on the cross. It is the propitiation, the removing of God's wrath from us, then put onto Jesus on the cross. But that's not all. I'm not done. Then there was the expiating work of Jesus, meaning the sins that we have committed, the sins that have defiled us have been washed away with the blood that was shed on the cross of Jesus Christ. So there's propitiation, there's expiation, there is also justification. Are y'all with me this morning? There is justification that takes place on the cross. That is the forgiveness of sins, but that's not all. It is not just the forgiveness of our sins, but it is the declaring that the righteousness that Jesus Christ has earned has now been accredited to our account. That's justification. There's, there's more. There's more. There's also sanctification which occurs on the cross because what happens on the cross is that the death of Jesus opens wide the doors for us to enter into 
into this thing called the Christian life. And as we enter into this thing called the Christian life, we begin on a trajectory to where we grow with Christ until we see him face to face. That's sanctification. I'm not done. There's one more. There's also adoption, meaning what happens on the cross of Christ is that us orphans are adopted into the family of God. We've been adopted by a a heavenly father who says, you were not mine, but now you are mine. There's more. Y'all want one more? What about glorification? So there's propitiation, there's expiation, there's justification, there's adoption, and then ultimately there's sanctification and then there's glorification. Meaning that one day what happened on the cross is that he becomes the prototype or the first one who goes through this process of death, rebirth into a new glorified body to where he is now with the father forever being the way maker for us to receive a glorified body so that we might be with him forever in eternity. That's glorification. That's what happens on the cross. The New Testament is not saying, look at the pain, look at the pain he endured, look at the pain he endured, even though that is what happened, he endured pain. The New Testament is saying, look at what it accomplished, look at what it accomplished, look at what it accomplished. And so for every single person sitting in this room this morning, no matter what is going on in your life, you can thank him for the cross. All three or four of y'all should have stood straight up and said, thank you for the cross. We can, I don't care what's going on in your life. You can thank him for the cross. And please hear me today. I'm not saying that you don't have real struggles or issues in your life. I'm not saying that the pain that you're going through is not real. What I am saying is this, and here's the whole point of the sermon. Collapsed and clinging to the foot of the cross is how we approach all of life. That's what I'm saying this morning. Collapsed, collapsed, meaning We lay before the cross, not in a sense of pride, not in in a sense of arrogance, as if we have leveraged ourselves into this place, standing next to the cross in victory. Oh no, church family. We have not leveraged ourselves. We have been leveraged into it by the power of God. So, So listen, for every single person in this room, I want you to hear it from me. There are no spiritual high horses in this church. As a matter of fact, let me take that a step further. There's no spiritual high horses in all of Christianity or the gospel, period. And so, so nobody's coming in here, uh, you know, holding their big giant ESV study Bibles. Uh, you know, in the, in the other one is our systematic theology thinking that we know something more and are way better than everyone else. Oh no, we are all, every single one of us, collapsed in humility at the foot of the cross. We're collapsed at the foot of the cross, but not only are we collapsed in humility at the foot of the cross, there we find ourselves clinging to the cross as our anchor, as our only hope, as our only purpose, as the thing which grounds us to all of life and everything we experience is through the cross. And so is it joy? We experience that through the cross. Is it sorrow? Is it accomplishments, defeats, difficulties in marriage? When our kids are experiencing terrifying health conditions, when I go to work, when I cook dinner, when I do the laundry, it's all from the foot of the cross. This morning, I have an impossible task. The impossible task is is for me to lead us through and explain the depths and the riches of this passage which describes for us the cross of Christ. And I want to go on record this morning and say to you, I will simply never do this text justice. 
It is impossible for me to do this text justice this morning. I cannot plumb the depths and the riches of what is here. All I can hope to do is simply give an explanation and be faithful this morning. And so that that will be my goal for us today. And so here's what I hope to accomplish. First, I want us to see this. Simon and the women at the cross. We'll meet Simon of Cyrene. We'll We'll see these daughters of Jerusalem that that come to weep. And they're there at at the cross. Second, we'll see this, that the crowds at the cross, it's not just Simon, it's it's not just these women, but there's soldiers there. there. There's people that's gathered. There's the religious leaders. I mean, a crowd of people have come to, to witness the crucifixion. And, and we'll see that in verses 32 through 38. And then lastly, the criminals, the criminals at the cross, one on his left and one on his right. They're there with him as he's crucified and one rails at him and one praises him. We'll see that in verses 39 through 43. My, my hope today is that as we look to the cross, this symbol of death and torture and execution, that, that it won't just be this symbol that we're so comfortable with and familiar with, but we'll really look into the cross and see what it means. I want us all to leave this morning with a deep sense of what the cross means. And beyond that, are y'all with me? Beyond that, I want the cross to put all of our life into perspective. All of our life into perspective through what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. First, we're going to see Simon and the women at the cross as we move from the Last Supper. This is Passion Week, so we've seen the Last Supper. We've entered with Jesus into the garden to where he sweat great drops of blood and submitted his will to the Father, and then he was betrayed by his friend Judas, and then he was illegally arrested and moved around these illegal courts, and his closest friend Peter has denied him three times, and he's endured a sleepless night. He's endured a false trial. He's endured beatings and mocking. And here we find him now on the Via Della Rosa, that is the way of suffering or the road of pain. Look at, look at verse 26 with me. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene. Again, this is not Simon Peter. This is Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene uh, is in modern day Libya or Northern Africa. Here's this man from Northern Africa who is uh, essentially commissioned or conscripted into uh, this work to carry the cross of Christ. So to add to the torture um, and humiliation of crucifixion, what was uh, standard practices after a severe beating, they would make the victim actually carry their own cross to their place of execution. And so probably historically, most of the pictures that we see in our mind are incorrect. They, they didn't carry the full cross. The, the center beam would have already been in place. What they carried to their place of execution would have been the crossbar. And so there is Jesus carrying the Roman, the rough-hewn wooden Roman crossbar on his back. And and we know that he's endured several beatings. We know that uh, he's sleep-deprived after being kept up all night. 
Luke doesn't mention this, but the other gospels mention this. He's also endured a Roman scourging, which many men simply didn't survive the, the scourging itself. It was so bloody and so brutal. And so as he goes down the Via Della Rosa, he, he simply because of blood loss, because of exhaustion, because he can't breathe, because he can't carry the cross. He's collapsed onto the ground. And so they grab someone from the crowd, the crowd and it happens to be this man, Simon of Cyrene. Now, he is obviously um, taken here unwillingly. Again, look at the beginning of verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon, probably could not get a volunteer. And so they, they drag him from the crowd and make him carry the cross of Christ. And so what Jesus had said to do back in Luke chapter 9, do you remember what, how Jesus had instructed his disciples that they should carry the cross? What he had instructed the disciples to do here, this man Simon of Cyrene actually does. He takes up the cross of Christ. And so now in this picture, in this picture, we see a picture of all of the Christian life. The sufferings of Jesus have now become the sufferings of Simon. What is so interesting is that the gospel of Mark indicates that Simon of Cyrene has his life changed here in this moment forever. The gospel of Mark indicates it. So it describes this very scene and it says that Simon of Cyrene carried the cross of Christ and you'll know him because of his two sons. Now, why would Mark say that? The reason that Mark would say that or give that detail in his account is because Simon of Cyrene is known in the New Testament church and so are his sons. And so what happens is as he carries the cross of Christ, something changes in his life forever. And Simon of Cyrene becomes a believer that day. Something happened in his life. And so let me speak to every Christian in the room this morning. You have been called into the service of Jesus to carry the cross. And so as we look as we look to the death of Jesus and as we look to the cross and we ask this deep question, what does it mean, the bloodied man on the cross, what does it mean? Well, it means this, if you're taking notes. The cross, the cross means suffering. The cross means suffering. We, we look upon Christ who is suffering so deeply he can't carry the cross. And then we look at this man who's snatched out of the crowd and he's forced to suffer with Jesus to carry the cross of Christ. And, and he's now forced to suffer. Again, we must remember that the physical suffering is not the main point at all, but the cross means a life of suffering for us. Oftentimes the gospel presentation that goes out is something like this. I say gospel in air quotes. That if you'll simply follow Jesus, then all of your life's problems will be fixed. If you simply follow Jesus, you'll have a great marriage, you'll have a happy life, and, and everything will be great. Just surrender your life to Jesus, and, and everything gets better. Well, that's certainly what not Je oh, Jesus has promised at all. As a matter of fact, Jesus promises the opposite. Jesus says, in this life, you will what? Suffer. This is the promise of Christ. He, he says, come and suffer with me. This is what Jesus promises his followers. He is calling us to a life of sacrifice. Listen to me, church family. Jesus is calling you to sacrifice your desires, to sacrifice your self-focus, and to nail those things to the cross. 
nail your your self-centeredness to the cross and take on a life of service to others, which is the way of suffering because people are difficult. Amen? Somebody today help me. Verse 27, look at it. It's not only Simon of Cyrene that's there, but, and there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting. So these women are there. Yes, yes, many people wanted Jesus dead, but not everyone. There's, there's this group of women that are following him. Interestingly enough, in every gospel account, women are always supporting and advocating for Jesus's ministry because he lifts them up. Verse 28, but turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. And so you have to see that even in the moment of Jesus's death, he has compassion for others. He's not seeking sympathy for himself, but what he is about to do is through his busted lips, through his gasping for breath, uh, through his bloodied, swollen eyes, he is going to look at these women and he's going to issue a heartfelt warning to them. Look at, look at what he says, verse 29. For behold, the days are coming when they will never know. Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. They will begin to say, mountains fall on us and to the hills cover us. Jesus issuing them a warning, and, and, and this is not only a prophetic warning of, of what is to come for Jerusalem, but this is an eschatological or an end-time warning as well. First, Jesus is warning them of the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which is going to happen in 70 AD when Jerusalem rebels against Rome, and Rome comes in and destroys all of Jerusalem, including the temple. The, the historian Josephus records this for us and says that the atrocities and the torture that those people endured at the hands of the Romans was simply unspeakable. And what Jesus is saying to these women is, it's gonna be better for those who don't have children. Why? Because they won't have to watch their children's city. And in time, but Jesus is also pointing to an eschatological reality, an end time reality, a final judgment reality. He's saying that the picture of Rome coming in to destroy all of Jerusalem and the judgment that happens on that day is simply a picture of the forecoming wrath of God that will be poured out on the final day of judgment. He gives them this very interesting proverb. Look at verse 31. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? It's a very interesting proverb. What does Jesus mean here? Well, Jesus argues comparatively. If Jesus, who is innocent, is suffering a painful death, what will happen to a nation or to a person who is guilty? That's what Jesus is saying. This is the wrath of God poured out on his innocent son, i.e. the green wood, which green wood doesn't easily burn. So what they're seeing is the wrath of God poured out on his innocent son, the green wood, which was not easily burned. What will the wrath of God look like on a nation or a person that is guilty, a person or a nation that has ignored God and killed the son of the father, their savior? They are the dry wood that will burn up in the fire, is what Jesus 
is saying. And so church family, as we look to the cross and as we ask this deep question about what does the death of Jesus mean, here's what we learn from this warning that Jesus gives. If you're taking notes, the cross, the cross means judgment. The cross means judgment. As we look at the bloodied Nazarene, his hands and his feet nailed to the cross, the crown of thorns hung on his head and blood runs down his entire body. As we look to that, we say, what, what does all of this mean? Well, it means judgment. As you're looking at that man, his bloodied body crucified, you're looking at the very judgment and wrath and condemnation of God. That's what we're seeing on the cross. What we look at is not ultimately calling for us to pity Jesus. I've read a ton of critical scholars and a lot of critical scholars will say something like this. They'll say something like, uh, Jesus was a good teacher. Um, he had some moral things to say, you know, the love your neighbor as yourself and, and things like that. And, and of course he raised up women and the orphan and but, but poor Jesus, you know, he got himself mixed up in a political situation that he couldn't get himself out of. And, and the result was his sad death and crucifixion. I bet poor Jesus. That, that's not what's happening on the cross at all. The cross is not calling for us to pity the pain that Christ endured. The cross is calling us to consider the judgment and the wrath of God that is coming for sinners. That is what the cross means. And so was Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, was it for you? Do you believe that the work that he did there was on your account? Secondly, we need to see the grace, the wrath of God yourself. Second, secondly, we need to see the crowds at the cross. We're, we're going to see that the criminals are already there, but more on them in a moment. We're going to see that there's soldiers there's people and the religious leaders. We're going to see that the crowd almost has this sense of sympathy for what's happening for Jesus. We'll see that the soldiers, they kind of have this indifference, um, this kind of prideful, playful indifference to what's happening to Jesus on the cross. And then we'll see the religious leaders and their vindictive anger and joy at the suffering and pain of Christ. Let's look at it together. I'm in verse 32. It's a heavy text today. Are you all still with me? Okay. Verse, verse 32 says this, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. Here we see that the prophecy that is spoken of in Isaiah 53 is coming true, that he would be crucified with the transgressors. Look at verse 33. And when they came to the place that is called the skull. That word skull there in Latin is calvaria. Calvaria, where we would get our word calvary. It, it, it means skull. That's what the word means. And, and some historians say that the hill that Jesus was led to, the hill itself actually had the shape of a skull. Others say it was called this because it was a place of execution and there were so many human skulls laying about. That's why it, it got its name, but no matter the very reason, that, that is what it is called, and that is the place where it was led. Again, here's what I want us to see. None of the gospel attempts to elicit from us pity dwelling on the very horrors of the crucifixion. What is remarkable about 
all of the New Testament accounts is that they are reserved and restrained in describing Jesus' suffering. And so as we look at the back half of verse 33, maybe the best thing that I can say about this verse is nothing at all. I simply want to read this verse. I'm just going to read it. And I would ask that we would all pause in silent reflection as we think on what this verse means. Look with me at the back half of verse 33. There they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. With the vision of the crucified Christ in our hearts and our minds, I want us to read what we see next in verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Again, in keeping with prophecy, it was prophesied that they would divide his garments. But Jesus begins by saying these very famous words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In, in a sense, in a small sense, they did know what they were doing. They knew that they were crucifying an innocent man. That was clear from our text last week. We read again and again and again. They knew that he was innocent, yet the Jewish leaders pushed forward his death. They knew they were crucifying an innocent man to get him out of the way. The Romans knew that they were crucifying an innocent man. As Pilate repeatedly said, he's innocent. I find no fault in him. But here's what Jesus means. Here's what they didn't know. They didn't fully know that they were nailing to the cross the God of the universe, the God who spoke and creation was, the one who was there at the creation of the universe and all that is and all that will ever be. He was there with his father and with the spirit. And there they were in, in the Trinitarian harmonious dance, which went on from eternity past and will continue on into eternity future. That is the full deity of the God man they nailed to the cross and that they didn't know. And so the forgiveness, which was being earned by Jesus himself being nailed to the cross, Jesus is asking that that forgiveness, which is coming only through his nailed hands and feet and his shed blood, Jesus is asking that that forgiveness, which he is earning in that very moment, be applied to them. To be applied to them because he he realizes that they have spiritually darkened eyes that cannot see the full deity on display on the cross. He realizes that their hearts, their spiritual hearts are dead and, and they cannot feel the enormity and the weight of what it is that they're doing as they've nailed the God-man to the cross. And so he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so again, as we look 
to the God-man nailed to the cross, the one who spoke all of creation into existence, putting on human flesh and coming to die in this terrible way as we look at the man on the cross and we ask this question, what does all of this mean? If you're taking notes, it certainly means this. The cross means forgiveness. Does it mean the judgment of God? Yes, Yes, it means the judgment of God. Look at the God-man and the the pain that he endured and the shame and everything that he went to. That is the judgment of God. They're hanging on the cross. God has poured out his wrath on that man. But it also means forgiveness for us. Here's what it means. I don't know who this is for, but it's for somebody, I'm sure. It means that you do not have to be defined by the sins of your past. You can be forgiven because of the cross. It means that the pain that you've carried because of the sins that you have committed when you were in high school, when you were in college, when you were in your last marriage, or the sexual sins that you've committed, or the things that you've said that you wish you could take back, that sin that follows you around, that feels like it's got its claws in you, and you can never shake it off. You can never be forgiven. Look to the man, the bloodied man on the cross, and there is your forgiveness. The cross means forgiveness. The cross means that your past sin does not define you. That's not you anymore. It was nailed to that cross. The cross means forgiveness for us. It means that you can be included in the family of God today, no matter what you've done. There's forgiveness. Isn't this great news? It means that you can spend eternity with God and his people, no matter how dark the sin of your past. There is forgiveness. It doesn't matter what you do in the future. There is grace for you, past, present, and future. There's forgiveness on the cross. And so as we look to the cross, what does it mean? It means forgiveness. It means forgiveness. Verse 35 now. And the people stood by watching Again, the the people are watching with with some type of sense of empathy for what this man is experiencing. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. They're not the only ones who mock. There's more mocking coming. Look at verse 36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up with an offering of sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. They don't only mock him in word, but but now they're going to make this little sign. The the sign there is a a mockery, isn't it? They're going to put this sign. Look at verse 38. And there was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. The religious leaders mock him. Oh, look, look at him. Look how silly this is. He says he's so powerful and he's the son of God. I mean, he, why, do, why doesn't he call down fire from heaven? Or, I mean, why did he simply save himself? And, and, and there, there are the, the soldiers, the Roman soldiers. Oh, this, this guy doesn't look much like a king, right? You can't do this to a king. Where's his army? Where's his kingdom? Where's his nation? I mean, this guy's silly. Let's make a little sign. We'll put it up there. We'll all have a good laugh. There he is, the king of the Jews. If you're taking notes, as we look to the cross and as we ask, what, what does the cross mean? Here's what it means. 
The cross means mockery. The cross means mockery. Church family, if they mocked Jesus who was on the cross, they will mock us who follow the way of the cross. So it's mockery for him, and it's also mockery for us. Listen to me, church family. If you show a lost and dying world that success and money does not define you, they will mock you. Don't you see this is what the world is chasing after? We we want success, and we want money, and we want wealth. Why, Why does our culture emulate and look to wealthy people? Because that's what we're all chasing after. And so if you say, no, I'm not chasing after that. Money and wealth is not my ultimate prize and my ultimate goal. People are gonna mock you because you will be weird in our culture. The cross means mockery. In addition, if we say a comfortable life in the suburbs, a nice family, and a nice car doesn't define me, you will be mocked. Again, what is is scrolling through our Instagram and Facebook feeds? It's a simple portrait and picture after picture after picture of a nice family with a nice house in the nice suburbs, living a nice, comfortable life. What is that showing you? That's showing you what the idols are. It's showing you what people are chasing after. Here it is, page after page, after scroll after scroll. It's showing you what our people are chasing after. And when you say, no, no, it's not ultimately about a nice family and a nice car in a nice house there in the suburbs. That's not my ultimate goal. My ultimate prize is the bloodied man on the cross. I want to serve him. I want to live for him. I want to be for him. You will be mocked. The cross, the cross means mockery. If we say to a lost and dying world that a vacation home and endless hobbies or even sexual freedom or gender identity Quote, unquote, those things do not define me. They will mock you and say that you are crazy. This will happen. If you tell a lost and dying world that collapsed and clinging to the foot of the cross is how I approach all of life, they will mock you. Just as they mocked Christ. But here's what the religious leaders missed. Here is what the soldiers missed. Ironically enough, they're telling Jesus that that if he really is the Christ to save himself, ironically, what we see is the only way Jesus can save others is not by saving himself. (laughs) He is saving others by not saving himself. And the sign that they put there to mock him, well... (laughs) Jesus is the king of the Jews. Well, he really is the king of the Jews and every other people group for that matter. So he is crucified. He is crucified as a king. And ironically enough, they are crucifying him for who he really is, the king. That's who Jesus is. They think that the crucifixion proves that he's not the king, but in fact, the crucifixion qualifies Jesus to be the king of all. So like Jesus, when we are mocked, we do not mock in return. Like Jesus, when they condemn us, we do not condemn them to hell. We do not slander them or harbor bitterness, but like Christ, we say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Third, third and last, the criminals at the cross. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged, that is hanged on the cross, railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. (laughs) Jesus is actually offering a way to save this man 
but his eyes simply cannot see it, but the other criminal does see it. Look at verse 40. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done no wrong. This is incredible what this man says to Jesus. Look at it. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. This man recognizes his own sin and his own guilt. And he realizes that he is receiving the just punishment for his sin. Yet he relies on the grace of Jesus and he asks to enter into his kingdom. And so after Jesus has been beaten and scourged, after Jesus has been nailed to a cross, he doesn't look much like a king with a kingdom, but this criminal understands in just a few hours what the disciples missed for three years. Namely, that Jesus has a kingdom beyond death, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And so as we look to the cross, what does the cross mean? Write this down, church family. The cross means a kingdom. There on the cross, it is the entryway for us to enter the kingdom of God forever with him, a place where there is no more sin, no more shame, no more crying, no more pain, a place where there is paradise, where we will be together forever with God, with his people at his table, feasting with one another, laughing and celebrating all of the victories of God. And the cross is the way we get there. And this man asks, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And so the cross means a kingdom, not only for Jesus, he's earning the kingdom. (laughs) He's earning the kingdom right there on the cross. He shows us that he has earned the kingdom through his resurrection, but he's doing the work of earning the kingdom on the cross. And the cross then opens up the way for us, us sinners, us rebels of the kingdom, are transformed into citizens of the kingdom through the power of the cross. Not only that, look at verse 43. And he said to him, (laughs) and he said to him, I'm telling you, three or four of y'all ought to be standing up right now. Thank you for the cross today. (laughs) And he said to him, truly, I say to you, next week, you will be, (laughs) and truly, he said to him in three months, three months time from now, Jesus said to him, and and truly, I say to you, 5,000 years uh, upon my reign when I return. (laughs) he says to him, truly, I say to you today, 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 you will be with me in paradise. We know that the apostle Paul teaches us in second Corinthians that to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. And so because of this man, throwing himself, collapsing at the foot of Jesus's cross, even though he's nailed to the other cross. He collapses himself and clings to the foot of Jesus's cross and says, would you remember me when you enter your kingdom? And Jesus says to him today, not next week, not next month, today you will be with me in paradise forever. This is the promise. This is the promise that he makes to this thief on the cross. And this same promise goes out to every single Christian in this room this morning. This promise is yours. What does the cross mean? What does the cross mean? Write this down, church family. The cross, the cross means promise. The cross means promise. It's the promise of the kingdom. 
It's the promise of hope in the future, that no matter how dark your day is now, no matter how dark last year was for you, no matter how dark it is what you're facing in front of you, there is light, there is hope, there is life. No matter how much it feels like death is crushing you, there is life ahead of you. No matter how much it feels like death is crushing you, there is life ahead of you. And it's a promise. It's a promise here that we get from Jesus as we see. He says to this man, today you will be with me in paradise. And so what what does all of this mean? Well, again, collapsed and clinging to the foot of the cross is how we approach all of life. You might be sitting here looking at me a little cross-eyed and saying, you're really excited about this, and I have no idea what that actually practically means. Okay, I have no time left. Um, I'm going to try to do at least five examples. Can we do that? Are y'all still with me this morning? At least five examples as quickly as I can, because this concept of a cross-centered life, of a gospel-centered life, lies at the very center of our faith. It actually lies at the very center of this church, and it is everything that we are and all that we are. This is a central text for who we are as a people, amen? And so this concept is so important. So let me just give five quick examples, as quick as I can, to describe what it is that I mean when I say collapsed and clinging to the foot of the cross is how we live all of life. I'm just going to insert at the end of that several different experiences and scenarios that many of us go through. And so the first one might look something like this. Collapsed and clinging to the foot of the cross is how we approach marriage. Amen? It's how we approach marriage, meaning this, my spouse does not exist to make me happy and to meet my needs. Amen, somebody. My spouse does not exist to make me happy or to meet my needs. Our marriage exists to glorify God, meaning each spouse elevates the needs of their spouse over their own needs in order to lift each other up to glorify God. That is how you cling to the cross and approach your marriage through collapsing at the cross. Okay, y'all are happy with that one. I'll go to the next one. Collapsed and cling to the foot of the cross is how we approach parenting. It's how we it's how we approach all of life. It's certainly how we approach marriage and parenting. Meaning this, my primary goal is not for my children help me today to make good grades and get into a good school and have a happy life. That's not our main goal as parents. That's not clinging to the cross. That's clinging to the culture. Help me today. But if we are going to collapse and cling at the foot of the cross as we approach our parenting, it means that this, my primary goal is for them to love and serve Jesus. If they get into a good school, great. If they, if they find a spouse and a partner, partner and, and their whole life, they're happy, great. What's more important is that they serve and love Jesus. That is the primary goal. Moving along, collapsed and clinging to the foot of the cross is how we approach our work. Meaning my job doesn't exist just to make money. It means if you're a man in the room, you're stepping into your primary role as provider, as as the provider of your home. And so your work is a reflection of Christ's likeness to your home as he provides a way, the man of the house provides a way through his work. Amen? And so your work is to be used, church family, to influence a sphere of people around you at your work with the gospel. Amen? Or how about this? Collapsed and clinging to the foot of the cross is how we approach friendships, meaning friendships with the lost so we can point them to Jesus and friendships with other people who are believers so that we can join together in service to our King. 
That's what friendship is about. Last one and I'm out of your hair. Collapsed and clinging to the foot of the cross is how we approach church. Somebody say amen today. We are God's people. And Sunday by Sunday, we need to be a member of a local church, deeply connected to other people who are also themselves collapsed and clinging to the foot of the cross. It's how we approach all of life, all over, everywhere, all the time. Church family, the cross, the cross then is a symbol of Jesus's death, but it is also the culmination of the purpose of his life. And now the cross is emblematic. The cross is emblematic. It is the symbol of everything that we believe as Christians. And so my prayer this morning, again for us, is that the cross would put into perspective all of our lives so that we might say, so that we might say, so that we would stand to our feet this morning and say with the hymn writer, Horatio Spafford. Some of y'all know what I'm about to say. Some of you don't. Oh, my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole was what? Was nailed to the, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for the cross. How unworthy we are to collapse there and cling to it. But Lord, we do not leverage ourselves into that place, but you have leveraged us into the place of being able to collapse and cling at the foot of the cross. Oh Lord, that the cross would put into perspective all of our lives, every area of our lives, as we would view everything that we do and say through the lens of your shed blood, of your nailed hands. Oh God, let us be a people of the book. And certainly, Lord, let us be a people of the cross. Send your Holy Spirit now to minister this word beyond what I have said. Oh Lord, get rid of anything that was unhelpful and apply anything that was helpful from your word to this people. I ask and pray all of this in the mighty and the powerful name of our great God and Savior, our King Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.